We started uh, Divine Dictionary last week, and uh, essentially it's an excuse to do some theology here, to open the Bible, and to go into some of the really deep things of God, uh, core foundational ideas, concepts, doctrines of Christianity. We started out last week on Mother's Day with God is love. We talked about how, according to Jesus, um, everything else is a footnote on that. God is love. Um, Jesus says all the law, all the prophets hang on love, loving God, loving one another. And then the apostle John, the love apostle, uh, talks about it a lot and in fact defines God, God is love. And so we talked about how the agape of God is different from other lesser versions of love that you and I may be familiar with and what that means for us. Well, yesterday I took the dog out for a walk yesterday afternoon and and we got about a halfway down the street, and there was David in the front yard of, of Nate's house, one of his friends, and they were playing baseball there. And one of, one of Nate's sisters came out, little sister came out, and she was holding this, this beautiful rabbit, and uh, not a toy rabbit, stuffed rabbit, not a real rabbit. Um, but she told me, she said, come look at my rabbit. And I was like, cool, that's beautiful, I love it. And she said, I got it at Build-A-Bear. And first of all, I'm like, Build-A-Bear, I thought you built bears there. But apparently, you can build about anything at Build-A-Bear these days. Um, in fact, she was telling me, you know, all of the different things. She got to choose the color of the material and the name. And, and there's just this whole kind of menu of things. And so she was very proud of her rabbit that she had gotten to build at, at some friend's birthday party. And it kind of made me think, since we're talking this morning about the holiness of God, it, it kind of made me think about the culture that we live in and, and, and the way that we... Um, as consumers want our coffee a certain way, you know, it used to be caffeinated or decaf, and then, um, you know, or caffeinated and Sanka. Anybody remember Sanka? <laughs> I wonder whatever happened to Sanka. That's a, that, that is a company that, that did very poorly because they owned the decaf market, and all of a sudden, you know, most people don't even know what Sanka is anymore. Um, but, we, but nowadays, you go, you know, you go to Starbucks and you get to choose your whatever, your half cap this with soy milk and whatever, you know, Splenda and all that. I mean, you get, to, you get to really doctor it up exactly the way you want it. And, and this Build-A-Bear or Build-A-Coffee or Build-A-Whatever is very much the way we think of. Um, we want to create things that work for us, that meet our desires and our tastes. And then we're confronted with something like the holiness of God. The otherness, the distinctness, the differentness of God, and the challenge for us, the reason I, I mentioned this Build-A-Bear idea is I think there is a, there's a tendency, kind of a Build-A-God tendency to create um, intentionally or, or subconsciously maybe to create a version of God that works for us. Now, this is not new. This was called idolatry, you know, 4,000 years ago. So it's not a new concept to kind of make a God or gods that kind of work with my lifestyle, work with who I am. And I think the holiness of God really challenges that because if if God is, is real, um, if God exists, if this holy God of Scripture exists, then I don't get to make him up. I don't get to invent him. Um, I encounter him on his terms, not on my terms. Um, and this, this qual- I think the quality of God, 
um, the characteristic of, of this God that wakes us up from a build-a-God culture or a build-a-whatever culture. The quality of God that wakes us up more than any other is His holiness. His holiness. Um, and on your outline this morning, I kind of have this definition. Holy literally just means separate. All right. Um, theologically, it is the separateness of God. It's the distinctiveness of God, um, the otherness of God. The God is not like me quality of God. And so a couple of things I want you to write down as we encounter the holiness of God this morning. The first thing is that God is altogether different from us. God is altogether different from us. He is not just a souped-up version of a human being, right? He's not just like bigger and and smarter and... No, he's not a souped-up version. He is holy. He is separate. He is distinct. He is fundamentally different. His holiness, the second bullet point here, means that he is infinitely, infinitely different greater than us, right? Different and greater than us. And, and just a couple of, I mean, a few quick hits here. We could go a lot of different places, but just a few that I kind of picked out that we'll just talk about for a minute, all right? We're not going to do justice to these, but just to kind of set the tone, to kind of give you an idea of how different God is from us, let's talk about his intellect, Let's talk about his intellect or his knowledge. And you could go to many places in Scripture to talk about how different the thoughts of God are from ours. Here's just one example. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 13, um, Scripture says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. All creation. That's pretty, pretty exhaustive there, isn't it? The entire material world, physical world, nothing hidden from God's sight. Nothing hidden. No animal, no plant, no person, no asteroid, no quark, no neutron, no, nothing hidden from God's sight. Nothing hidden from God's sight. Now, all of us, this is the way we kind of start out thinking. Intellect, okay, well, all of us to some extent have intellect. Even, even Miami Heat fans have intellect, I suppose. Um, so, uh, so we start thinking, well, God, okay, so he may have much more information or knowledge than I have, but, but at least I can kind of grasp this one because I have some degree of intellect. Uh, not really. Not really. Can't really grasp this. Because God knows everything about everything. Everything that happens on this planet, every DNA formulation of everything, every plant, every animal, every thought that passes through my mind, through your mind, through the mind of a sixth grader in Djibouti, he knows everything. He has this same perfect knowledge of everything on every planet, every celestial body throughout the universe so, no, I, I can't really compare my intellect to God's intellect. It doesn't really work. I'm not comparable to God in terms of intellect. Um, think of a termite, right? A tiny termite there trying to compare itself to you. 
Well, the difference between you and God is infinitely different than the difference between you and that termite. And this, even this idea, consider this with me, even, even the idea we try to think, what if I was this termite trying to compare myself to, the, to, this, to me, right? Well, the termite doesn't even have the mental capacity or the ability to understand in any kind of sense what it would be like to be a human being. You with me on this? It's not just, well, he's a lot bigger and a lot this or that. And when you and I try to compare ourselves to God, it, it's, it's not like a termite comparing itself to me. The difference is vastly greater than that. You with me? I mean, I'm just trying to get an idea, trying to touch the, the hem of the garment of this difference between God and, and, and I, God and you. He's, he's separate. He's holy. Well, how about, um, how about power? This is a second little bullet there under the differences. How about in terms of power, in, in terms of ability to get things done? Um, as the angel speaks to Mary, who is a virgin, and he has told her she's pregnant, and, and she says, well, that's not possible. I mean, I, I may be a teenage girl, but I understand some things about biology here. That's, that's not possible. And the angel says, nothing is impossible with God. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is impossible for me. Um, there is a lot of stuff that is impossible for me. Um, where do you start, you know? I mean, man, I can't even get my, half the time, I can't even get space in an overhead bin on an American Airlines flight. You know what I'm saying? It's like a, it's like a scrum. It's like a rugby match in there trying to get my, you know, I don't want to gate check it. I want it to be on, my, on the overhead bin, okay? There's nothing impossible for God. Nothing impossible for God. Um, if God wills something to be done, it, it, it's done. In my world, I, I, you know, I can't even will what channel the, the, the TV is going to be on. I mean, I don't even get that, you know? So some of you guys are trying to think up exceptions. I mean, I bet, what if God makes a rock that, that God can't move or stuff like that? That's crazy. I mean, God is, has unlimited power, and we can't begin to understand what that would look like. I mean, when we do, I think God kind of looks at us and says, hey, good luck, termite, you know? Good luck with that, trying to understand what my power is like. Well, at least with power and intellect, our minds do have some categories to work with. That uh, we understand how these categories at work, work, at least in our world, in our conception of things. But what about this next one? God is different from me in substance. God is different from me. It's a day for God is like a thousand years or a billion years, or a trillion years. It, time is unaffected by time. God, God is fundamentally different in substance from me. As, as Jesus proclaims in John 4, 24, God is spirit. Okay, no big surprise there. You'll find that throughout Scripture. But, but God is spirit. Think about that for a second. I mean, you and I may have a spiritual dimension but we can't escape our way of engaging the world, which involves our five senses. We can't get out of that toolbox that we have to work with to understand the world, which involves our five senses. The stuff 
of God is different. The essence of God is different. Um, God can manipulate or engage the material world in any way he would like to do that. He can also engage the spiritual world in any way he would like to do that. Um, Does this make sense? It shouldn't, okay? The last thing this should make for you and I is sense. Because God exists in a reality outside of my senses. Outside of the five senses. So if you've made sense of God, then you've just been doing build a God. You've managed to fit him into your ability to test and observe and imagine. God is spirit. I can't really access what that means. God is spirit. I'm not. May have a spiritual component, may have a spiritual side, but I can't know what it's like to be a spiritual being. Now, we, we, we do well when we use our five senses well. Um, we, we need people who are able to do that. We, we need Christian doctors and scientists and physicists. We need more and more of those folks who, who, because God gave us the ability to engage the world using these senses, praise God for that. But to think that God's existence can somehow be like disproven, um, or for that matter, proven using those spheres of study is to ignore his self-revelation in Scripture when he tells us, look, I'm spirit. I'm a spiritual being. I'm not dependent on those realms, right? So his holiness invokes this sense of separateness, um, otherness in a number of categories. But most often when you and I think about the holiness of God, what we think about is the moral difference between God and I, between God and us. So, so that's the next bullet point there is in terms of morality, in terms of goodness. God is holy. I'm not, all right? Um, Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is a rock. His works are perfect. All His ways are just. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is He. That's everything I'm not, okay? It's everything you're not. He's perfect in His ways. He doesn't make unjust decisions. And since we can't identify this is very important now as we move into the, begin to engage a couple of scriptures this morning, a couple of stories. Since we can't begin to identify with the holiness of God, the most mysterious, perplexing, unsettling, disturbing stories in the Bible will be those stories at which the holiness of God is the center. They're going to be the real head-scratchers for us. And those stories about the holiness of God in Scripture will disturb, will shock, will leave us going, what? And they will also wake us up from the delusion that we can build a God that fits into our intellect or into our desires or into our you name it. 
And so that's why these stories are so important. These are not the kinds of stories we're going to cozy up to, but these are stories we desperately need. Here we go. To couple, we're going we're gonna to develop a couple of stories a little more, but, but just kind of touch a couple of other stories. Let me touch this one first. Um, Nadab and Abihu, a little obscure story from the Old Testament. These guys are priests. They are sons of Aaron. Um, they have a variety of duties and responsibilities in the tabernacle. Um, it is a, a hugely important slash prestigious role to have um, to be able to go into the tabernacle and to be able to help this, t- this worship um, happen and, and this place where, where God's people engage their God. It's an amazing thing. These two brothers um, in, in a story in the Old Testament take this responsibility very lightly. Um, in fact, we've talked about this before fairly recently, so I won't go into all of it, but, but I believe they were actually drunk as they were conducting their, their tabernacle uh, services one day. And, and in this place where God is supposed to be honored above all other places, I mean, this is the special place where, where, we, where, we, where we go to worship, go to engage God. In that place, most sacred place on planet Earth, um, they are out of control and they're drunken and they're not taking God responsibly and God strikes them down. Not a warning shot, not a, okay, two, that, that's one strike, two more and you're out. They're gone. They're dead. It's over. They walk in the tabernacle alive. They don't take God seriously. Their bodies are drug out, dead. Like I said, kind of unsettling, kind of, oh, I don't know what to think about that. Ananias and Sapphira would be the duo in the New Testament we might think of that would kind of resemble that. Ananias and Sapphira, members of the early church, uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, the, the disciples are all, all selling lots of their possessions or, uh, and, and donating and sharing amongst themselves so that nobody has any needs. They have a valuable piece of land. They share it. Um, first, Ananias troops in and says, Here was the, here's the selling price. He lied. He fudged. He said... He said we're giving you all of the money we sold it for. Really, they were keeping some back for themselves. He is struck dead. A little while later, um, his wife comes in. She has no idea what's happened. And same thing, is this the entire price of the, of the property you sold? Yes, it is. They lie to the Holy Spirit. They're struck dead. We struggle with a story like that. We don't enjoy a story like that. We can't cozy up to a story like that. Or um, some of our personal favorite or perhaps your least favorite story would be the story of Uzzah. Poor Uzzah. First Chronicles chapter 13. Um, The ark, by the way, has been the the ark of the covenant. You know, this, this symbolic object of the presence of God where where God dwells in in a special and powerful and fully present way between these these cherubim on the lid of the ark. I mean, this thing is is incredibly important. It is the center um, physically of the Jewish faith. Wherever it is, the presence of God is in, in a special, powerful way. It's been kept for some time in, in their family home. They've gotten used to seeing it. 
Now David has decided it is finally time to bring the ark up into Jerusalem where it belongs at the center of Israel, the capital of, Jer- the capital of Israel. And so they load the thing onto an ox cart and they are wheeling it up the road. As you can imagine, the roads back then were not very smooth, all right? And so this thing is josh- jostling around. It looks, the oxen stumble. They're kind of tripping over some stuff. Um, Uzzah and his brother Ahio see this happening. Uzzah puts out his hand to stabilize the ark. The Lord strikes him down. He's dead. Talk about raining on the parade. I mean, we have thousands of Israelites. They are singing. They are rejoicing. This is great. I mean, we're, we're going to get the ark in Jerusalem finally. This is an incredible moment for all of us. What happened up there? Everybody's getting quiet. What, what happened? Uzzah touched the ark, and God struck him down. Wow. And I love the fact, First Chronicles chapter 13 tells us the story. I love the fact it also records the reaction of David, because the reaction of David is similar to our reaction. David is disturbed. In fact, the Scripture says David is angry with God. So unjust. He was just trying to help. So David is is angry with God. We read that story and we're like, what just happened? This is a story about the holiness of God. That's why it's strange to us. That's why it's mysterious. That's why it's unsettling. And I believe any attempt to tame a story like this, to explain everything away, is to, is to not do justice to the text. I think it's okay to be unsettled. David was unsettled. I think it's okay to be unsettled. But what we also see in this story in First Chronicles 13 is that the... The normal mode of God, the default mode of the God we serve is to bless people. That's what he wants to do because, well, as you might imagine, the journey to Jerusalem stops right there. we got to find a place to park the ark before anybody else dies. And so they park the ark in the home of Obed-Edom, this fellow. That's his claim to fame. They park the ark at my house for 90 days. During the 90 days, the ark is parked at his house. His family experienced the most unbelievable run of prosperity and good fortune. The presence of God was with them. God was blessing them. Listen to this description, 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verses 12 to 14. David was now afraid of God. This is after the death of Uzzah. David was now afraid of God. He asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God back into my care. So David did not move the ark into the city of David. That's Jerusalem. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of God remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he owned. So why did God kill poor Uzzah for just trying to stabilize the ark when it looked like it might topple over? 
the presence of God was there. Presence of God was there. For one thing, the ark wasn't supposed to be transported on an ox cart. There were very specific instructions which were ignored about how the ark was to be transported using these poles and would be carried by priests, by the Levites. It, it, It wasn't to be put on an ox cart. It wasn't a piece of furniture. It wasn't your friend Bob's couch that you're you're gonna move to his new apartment and you throw it in the back of the pickup truck. It isn't a piece of furniture. And then the book of Numbers, everyone is warned, by God, anyone touches this, they will die. Uzzah touched it. And God doesn't say, JK, LOL, wasn't serious about that, all good, come on, I'm not going to kill anybody for... I said, you touch it, you die. This is about my holiness. Not a piece of furniture. So Uzzah treated the ark. I mean, it had been in his house for, for a while. He'd gotten accustomed to it, familiar with it. Kind of was part of the surroundings. So when it starts to tip over, I'm going to reach out, I'm going to stable, I'm going to try to help out, you know? But when he acts as if it is something familiar, something common, we begin to sense part of the problem, part of what was going wrong. The holiness of God is, by definition, the separateness from us. We don't get to tweak it. We don't make to get, we we aren't able to make it fit us. We aren't able to handle it, to move it around. We aren't able to touch it. So the, the question most people ask with this story, with the story of Uzzah, and I hope this is a disturbing story. I hope I'm, I'm, my intention is not to work it all out and make sense of it for you because it's a story about God's holiness, about his differentness. But the story most people ask when they, when they come to the end of this story of Uzzah is this story, how could God have used capital punishment against a guy who was just trying to help? And that's the wrong question. What was really at play in the story of Uzzah is whether or not we get to treat the things of God like furniture, like possessions, like tools at our disposal. Like I said, this is a story about the holiness of God. So when the message is properly understood, though, and this is interesting, if you watch David through the story, and we're not going to get into all of it, right, but you watch David in the story, um, and you look at it through his lens, he reacts in a certain way, but, but you begin to understand when this story is properly understood and contemplated, it does not result in being paralyzed by terror at the thought of offending God. In fact, the beautiful result of the story is to be awestruck and is to be drawn into worshiping this holy God. So three months after the death of Uzzah, 
and the house is parked in Obed-Edom's house. Every, everybody there is blessed. Three months after this, David decides once again, we are going to get this ark up into Jerusalem. That's where it needs to be. And this is how it goes down. 2 Samuel 6, verses 14 to 16. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. While he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. David's response to God's holiness wasn't to cower in fear, was it? It was to leap. It was to dance with joy. Once he had processed it, once he had, oh, that's what happened. He was in awe of his God. Michael, daughter of Saul, also wife of, of David, she found his behavior to be inappropriate. Not demonstrating proper reverence or dignity that a king should have, David didn't really care much what she thought. He was responding in worship to God, wasn't trying to impress her, wasn't trying to impress anybody else. He leapt, he danced before God. Now another vignette about the holiness of God from Uzzah to Uzziah. We're getting all the Uzzahs today. Um, from Uzzah to Uzziah, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah the prophet is going to have this amazing encounter with God. The year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and with two they were calling to one another. What are they saying? They're saying, holy Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, this isn't God talking. These are just angels. These are beings created by God. And at the sound of these created beings' voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah, his response, love it. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean. I'm unholy. I'm not holy. That's basically what he says here. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew, one of these angelic beings flew with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? His famous reply, Here am I. Send me. Very quickly, this is going to take about a minute, so just go with me on this. From this story, there are, there are a few important things we see about the holiness of God, about our response to it. First thing is this, joyful surrender. Joyful surrender. Isaiah doesn't run away from God. He can't take his eyes off the Lord. 
he joyfully surrenders to God, confesses his sinfulness, accepts the forgiveness that comes through God as his sin is atoned for. Number two, heartfelt worship. The greatness and majesty of God create a sense of awe that calls me to praise Him. Even the angels in heaven, as they contemplate God, they simply must praise Him. Third thing is thoughtful action. The holiness of God requires me to treat the things of God seriously, differently than I would treat other things. Thoughtful action is, here am I, God, send me. Now, last week we talked about the love of God. This week we're talking about the holiness of God. And we're kind of going, whoa, two extremes of the pendulum here. And next week we're going we're to work with, with the way God brings these two together. But we begin to see that even in Isaiah's response. God has to take action. God must atone for his sins. God loves Isaiah. God loves you. And God takes action to bring you into fellowship with him. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. God has to do something about our unholiness in order that we may live in this agape love of God. And that's why I bristle about any idea that somehow we can get everything right in terms of our worship. The important thing is that you have been made right and that you take God seriously when you worship God. You don't treat the worship of God like moving a couch, right? But you're, you're never going to make your worship acceptable. Only God can make you acceptable. And then your worship flows out of that. Finish real quickly with a story. I know we're short on time, but I want to share this this morning. I was just thinking about this. I was just remembering when I was... When I was a small kid, and, and I, one of those first years, I was able to leave our house and walk to the Neosho Square on my own. Amazing feeling of independence, you know, to walk down the steps, to walk that quarter of a mile to the town square. And on this day, I was going to buy my mom a birthday present. How much does a seven-year-old have in terms of cash? Not much. I went to the drugstore. And I selected which, what was to me an incredibly valuable, a priceless object. This dollar 19 cent bottle of perfume. You with me? This was not good perfume. <laughs> but this bottle of cheap, nasty perfume was the best I could get. So I spent everything I had, and I took that bottle of perfume to my mom. I said, happy birthday. And you know what? She loved it. I'm not saying she wore it, okay? <laughs> right? <laughs> she loved it. Why is it that when a child can be a three-year-old, a five-year-old, why is it that when a child scrawls something on a piece of paper, a drawing, or those first words they know how to write, and they give it to mom, why is that a treasure? 
the purse or the perfume or whatever or the jewelry, she probably won't be using that in five years or ten years, even if it's exactly what she wanted. But that piece of paper, that's going to go into a special place. That's going to go into a special drawer, and that's going to stay with her forever. Not because of the artistry, not because of the beautiful color choice the three-year-old used or the beautiful penmanship, but because that comes from a child that she loves dearly. God is holy, God is separate, God is distinct, but God loves you. And God loves it when you bring Him the gift of your worship. And so there's a calling in this to worship God and to enjoy the blessing of God. He longs to bless His people. Not punish, but bless. That's what He longs to do.